okay. I do that for your benefit. Um, uh, in his book entitled The Pleasures of God, John Piper quotes uh, Clyde Kilby. I always love this quote. Let me just share it with you. One of the tragedies of growing up is that we get used to things. Is that not true? He says there is immense loss when we get used to the redness of the sun and the roundness of the moon, the whiteness of the snow, wetness of rain, blueness of the sky, the buzzing of bumblebees, the stitching of crickets, the invisibility of the wind, the unconscious constancy of heart and diaphragm, the weirdness of noses and ears, the number of grains of sand on a thousand beaches, the never-ceasing crash of countless waves and billions of keenly clad flowers flourishing in field, wood, and valley. How many of you are guilty of uh, losing the wonder of those common things? Then he says, I sometimes look back at the freshness of vision I had in childhood and I try at least for a little while to be, in the words of Lewis Carroll, the child of pure unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. I love that quote. To be uh, the child again of pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. Every year we go to Interlaken uh, in the middle of summer for a five-day conference. And, uh, you know, you guys have driven through Switzerland. You know what it's like. It's like the Swiss have no excuse to be in awe of God. Um, and, but you drive up there, you know, and it's just beautiful. It's just astonishing. It's, it's almost like, it's almost dreamlike. It's, it's fantasy-like. It's surreal how beautiful it is. And really for the first few days there, you're kind of still caught up in that. But what happens on about the fourth or fifth day? You stop seeing it. And, you know, your average citizen of Interlaken, I guarantee you they don't see it anymore. They don't see it anymore. You know, we have this sad capacity as human beings to be able to drink up the most astounding beauty, awe, and wonder and become bored with it in a very, very short time. And I say this is a, a very sad trait that we as fallen human beings have. About 20 years ago, uh, a friend asked me a question that had a, a really, a, uh, I guess I would say, a profound and, and lifelong effect on me. I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years and I was a, I was a complete amateur, right? I was a babe in the faith. Theologically speaking, I didn't know my left hand from my right hand. All I knew was, man, you know, I knew I was jazzed about Christ, right? And uh, so, uh, so you, know, you know, what he asked me didn't have so much to do with what I didn't know, but what I was doing with what I already did know. And uh, I, what a terrible, awful, horrible, spiritual malpractice kind of thing when you and I become acclimated when we get used to, when we take for granted the glory of Christ, who He is and what He's done in our behalf, how can we ever get used to the idea that God was incarnate and crucified for me? I call it uh, the worst kind of spiritual malpractice on our, on our parts. When we stop consciously rejoicing in Him and we, 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 we stop savoring the sheer awe of who He is and what He's done. Beloved, it's one thing to get used to the redness of the sun and the, the buzzing of bumblebees, but it's quite another thing to lose the awe and wonder of the Gospel, to lose the awe and wonder of the miracle of 
your salvation. This is what my friend, I think, was sensing in me that I was becoming too acclimated, or as I think the Brits say, acclimatized, um, to, the, to my own conversion. Is that it? Acclimatized? <laughs> okay. <laughs> acclimatized. You know, it's like we start taking it for granted that the Son of God became a man and was nailed to a tree because of me. And it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, my friend asked me. He turned to me and said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, I don't want you to give me a quick answer. I want you to think deeply about it. We'll talk in two days. I said, okay, we'll do that. He said, if you didn't already possess the true knowledge of God, how much would you give to have it? I want you to think about that, Christian friend. If you did not already possess the true knowledge of the living God, what would you give in exchange for it? I, already, I knew my answer immediately. I knew it immediately. But I, I honored his request and I, I didn't respond to him immediately. And I went and thought about it and the more I thought about it, the more awestruck I was. Um, what would I give to know that Jesus is my creator and that I was made by Him and for Him. What would I give to know that, as Adam said, as he said in his prayer, before eternity passed, He set His heart on me. What would I give to know about His infinite condescension that living God became, became a man and was nailed to a tree to save me from my own sin? Uh, what would I give to know about that horrible, wonderful cross where He redeemed me? What would I give to know that he is my infinite and eternal reward. He is my reward. He is my inheritance. What would I give to know that? You know the answer, right? Everything. Anything. All things. I was thinking about it uh, as I was contemplating the sermon. I thought, man, I, I, I would climb mountains. I don't even like to climb mountains. You know, I would traverse seas. I would fight dragons, Right? I mean, whatever. To know this. To know this. And God help us. So much of the modern church, it's almost like we've lost the wonder of it and the awe of it. And we don't meditate deeply on it. We're not moved by it. I think this is a great, great tragedy in, in, in the church. Man, I would expend myself in all my wealth to know these things were true. And God just freely gives what we would give everything to own and know and possess. He just freely gives it. How many times have we said it in this church? He's an omnipotent giver. He just keeps giving, giving, and giving. He only gives to His kids. He never takes. He only gives. He only gives. And uh, He has chosen gladly, as Luke chapter 12 says, to give us not only the kingdom of God, but Himself. And He will spend forever communicating Himself to us and revealing the glory of who He is. And I have to say, my friend's question had its desired effect in my life. I will confess I am obviously, uh, I am sometimes oblivious to the glory in the created order, but I dare say that I am rarely guilty anymore of taking Jesus Christ for granted. And I just want to challenge you this morning. I just want to challenge you on that point. I think we've this is obviously an oxymoron, a Christian who is blasé about Christ. This is obviously an oxymoron. <laughs>
Uh, we know what Jesus says about uh, lukewarm affections toward him. We know how he feels about that. You know, I, I've shared this with you before. John Eldridge talks about uh, you go into your average American church, and I won't talk about other churches. I, uh, I'm from America, so I have license to talk about it. But, uh, and you find bored Christians. Bored Christians. Friends, <laughs> that's an oxymoron. It's really blasphemous. Can I say that? Can I say that? In my view, it's blasphemous to be bored in the presence of Christ. I have to say, if we are, we've not really met Him. And we don't really know Him. We've not fully understood. Isn't that terrible? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think it's a blasphemous thing. Some of you remember, okay, I'm following to the text. Some of you remember that uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about the, the first chapter of the book of James and I borrowed a Piper quote, bad, bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people, which is to say non-biblical theology hurts people. We define the word uh, theology, it just means the study of the nature of God. It means how we think about God. It means what we believe to be true about God. Bad theology hurts people because wrong believing leads to what? Wrong living. So this is uh, there's you know eternities at stake here when we're talking about bad theology. And the Holy Spirit has been teaching us that uh, teaching us this truth in the book of James, and He's telling us that hey, we possess the true knowledge of God. As I mentioned a while ago, the true knowledge of God. He says you need to bring that to bear in your trials. That's what he's talking about here in James chapter 1. Bring the true knowledge of God you possess. Bring it to bear against your trials. Let your joy rule over your trials. You know, the joy of Christ and the fullness of Christ, uh, it dwarfs any uh, trial that we're in. If we'll only think biblically, if we'll practice good theology, if we'll just bring this true knowledge of God that we possess to bear on our trials, we will not be blown away. We will not be blown over when the hard thing comes. And this is what James is saying to us. And he pivots. We talked about this, uh, I think, last time we were in James. He pivots between uh, verse 12 and 13. And he starts to talk about temptation. Well, what's, what's the pivot here? Why is he pivoting? Well, if we respond to a trial in a biblical way, if with good theology, if we bring uh, the true knowledge of God that we possess to bear in this trial... What? It becomes a means of great blessing and growth, right? But if we don't think biblically, if we're thinking, uh, if we bring bad theology to, to the trial, it becomes what? A temptation, potentially a temptation that will lead into sin. And this is what James is warning about. So the context hasn't changed. He's going from, from a trial, uh, then he says, hey, the trial can become a temptation which will lead you into sin. If we're not thinking, if we're not thinking biblically and then verses 13 through 16 i had sam read that I actually preached that the last time we were together on the, on the book of james he says hey don't blame god for your sin and your temptation it's your own lust you're responsible it's not god's fault it's your fault take responsibility for your own sin and that's good theology that's biblical theology we understand we need to bring uh, the true knowledge of God to bear in the trial that we might not allow it to become a temptation that would drag us into, into sin. And that brings us to uh, verse 17. 
And the Holy Spirit extends this exhortation in verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James says if you have good theology, if you're bringing uh, the true knowledge of God that you possess to bear in your trial, you will be thinking rightly about yourself, you'll be thinking rightly about your sin, but most importantly, you'll be thinking right about God. So what are the two attributes in, uh, uh, that James is talking about here in James chapter 1, verse 17? What are the two attributes of God that are visible to us in this one verse? Pardon me? His goodness. His goodness and what? The other one might be a little harder to see. He's unchanging. Hey, not only is He good, He's never not good. Okay? Theologians call this immutability. God is immutable. Um, it just simply means that He is unchanging. He is unchanging. Listen, I want to talk first about the goodness of God. Just a few passages. Okay. I could stand up here till I fell down on this one. But uh, Psalm 119.68. I'm just going to talk about the goodness of God. Psalm 119.68. Thou art good and doest good. Psalm 52.1. The goodness of God endureth continually. Psalm 86.5. For thou, O Lord, o Lord, art good, abundant in loving kindness. Psalm 100, uh, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is what? Oh, it's everlasting. Psalm 106.1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 33.5. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 145.9. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all of His works. You know that great verse, Mark 10.18. No one is good except God, Jesus says. God is not only the greatest of all beings. <laughs> I love this quote. He's not only the greatest, He's the best. He's perfectly, eternally, unchangeably, beautifully good. He is all goodness. All He does is good. He is innately good. He is infinitely good. He is irrepressibly good. And I love how one theologian said it in my readings. I noticed, he says, Jesus Christ glitters with goodness. <laughs> I love that quote. I love that quote. Have any of you ever stood at Niagara Falls? Anybody? Pretty an awesome thing, right? And you know, anytime you use an analogy for God, it's always poor at best. It's a it's a finite analogy. But what I want to say to you is goodness falls from God like Niagara Falls. You couldn't stop Niagara Falls if you wanted to. No group of men could stop, no group of nations could stop Niagara Falls. But God is like that. You can't stop God's goodness. And, I, and I, parenthetically, I have to say this. Anytime you talk about the goodness of God, you know, you have men who want to rail at God because of all the evil and suffering in the world. You know, the point will come up, well, why is there, in, you know, if God was good, there'd be no injustice. If God was good, there'd be no child abuse. If God was good, there'd be no wars. If God was good, there'd be no genocide. Listen, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think. The world's in a mess and we acknowledge that. But is that God's fault? What I read in Genesis uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3 is that He put us in paradise. Right? With one restriction. Just one. And uh, 
we, we ate of the fruit. We did that. We rebelled. We let Satan loose. We gave Satan dominion on the planet. So, I don't have time to develop that. I think, I think you guys probably all understand that. Don't let anyone ever rail at God in front of you. I know we deal with unbelievers at times, but try to softly and lovingly point them to the truth of the Bible. That uh, the world is in a mess, not because God is not good, but because we are not good. Because our hearts are depraved, fallen, and corrupt. So, I could preach a long, long time on the goodness of God. There are at least, I counted them, there are at least 10,187 sermons on the goodness of God. I counted those up last night. I was up late counting those. But I'm, I don't have time to fully develop that, but we're just going gonna to continue on. James says, Every good thing is from God. Everything good. Every perfect thing is from this awesome God. I want to talk just a minute about His immutability that's inferred here with respect to the fact that there's no variation in Him. There's no shifting uh, in, in Him. And again, theologians call this the immutability of God. It just simply means He's eternally unchanging. It's implied in His name. Remember He told Moses His name, Exodus 3. Um, I am who I am. And it's implied there. Just the, the uh, transcendent, eternally unchanging self-existence of God. He does not change. And you know, just for the record, God says it explicitly in Malachi 3.6. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. Pretty plain. I am the Lord, I change not. And I think this is a great comfort to us, uh, believer. For those of you who are Christians this morning, what an awesome, awesome comfort this is to us. God is not only good, He'll never not be good. He's unchangingly good. You can count on it. He's always going to be good. For every nanosecond of eternity past, God was designing good for Jim Albright. I believe that. And on my worst day, I start to think, oh, about every nanosecond in eternity past, God was designing good for me. Oh, and every nanosecond for an eternity future, God is going to be lavishing goodness upon me. Do you think like that? Because that's how God is. That's how good God is. I am the Lord. I change not. I love my people. And it's going to be Niagara Falls forever for my people. I like how Piper says this. He says, uh, when we come to our Heavenly Father, we will never find Him out of sorts, frustrated, gloomy, or irritable, who wants to be left alone. But we will find a Father whose heart is so full of joy. It spills over onto everyone who is thirsty. I love that. Our Heavenly Father never has a bad day. He never, you know, He never turns away. He never gets distracted. Man, He's going to do good in the believer's life. He's going to do good. That's all He's going to do. He's going to do good. Even when, even when it's hard, He tells us, believe I'm working good in this. God says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, He says, I'm giving every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to my children. Every spiritual blessing. So what, is, what does James mean when he calls God the Father of lights? Well, this is an ancient Jewish express, expression for God as Creator. Okay? 
And I think, too, it carries with it the idea that, that God is the Father of lights, and it's an analogy to the Son. What is the, who is, you know, what, what celestial body is the Father of lights in the sky? It's the Son, right? I think this is a reference to uh, the Son. The Son is just always there. The Son is blazing. The Son is always blazing. There are no phases to the Son. It never changes. It's the Father of lights in the celestial um, canopy. It's the Father of lights in the celestial canopy. The lesser lights, including the moon and all others, they, there are variations in them. There are phases in them. But the, God, the, the sun just blazes all the time. And it just fills the created order with light. And I think there's an analogy here. God is just blazing all the time. And He's filling His children with His goodness. With His goodness. I think there's an analogy there. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. There's no change in God. There's no shifting in God. There's no variation in God. He just blazes away all the time, filling His body with His goodness. Psalm 33, 5, The earth is full of the goodness of God. I love how A.W. Pink talks about this. Um, and I can remember when I first read these sentences. I'm going to share a quote with you. And I can remember the first time I read these sentences. And uh, I thought, man, I've never thought of that before. Uh, but listen, I bet some of you have never thought about this before. Pink says it like this. Not only has God given us senses, what else has God given us? He's given us the senses, but what else has He given us? That which gratifies the senses. Have you ever thought about that? I'm just talking about the ubiquitous goodness of God, okay? And he goes on, he says, God may have been pleased to satisfy our hunger without food being pleasing to our power. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about how good God is that food tastes good? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, this is so simple, but to me it's, it's, it's moving, it's profound. He says, Our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with their colors and our nostrils with their sweet perfumes. We might have walked the fields without our ears being saluted by the music of the birds. Then he says this, Whence then this loveliness, this charm so freely diffused over the face of nature? I bet uh, some of us in here have been taking the goodness of God for granted. And then he closes with Psalm 145.9, The tender mercies of the Lord are over all of His works. And C.S. Lewis makes this great point. He says, man, when we have those transcendent moments of, of beauty and wonder and joy and happiness upon the earth, something we experience here in the temporal realm, he says, man, all that does is point to God. It's just a pointer. It's a faint echo. It's a glimmer of the goodness of God. And he's right about that. Every joy you've ever experienced. There's no... You know, there's no glory in the joy itself. It's just an echo of Him. It's an echo of Him. I love that point. I love that point. Verse 18, the Holy Spirit continues to drive home this point about the goodness of God. And uh, James is saying, hey, yeah, you, you may have been through a trial. It may be tough, but we're going to think rightly about God. We're going to think biblically about God. Even if things get hard... We're going to take that true knowledge of God that we possess and bring it to bear in our hard times. Hey, God is unfailingly and unchangeably good. He says that in verse 17. And then he comes down to verse 18. He says, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among 
His creature. So what is the irrefutable, undeniable evidence of the goodness of God to you and me as Christians? What is it? That by His will, He has brought us forth by the word of truth. By His will, the Most High God has taken on flesh and been nailed to a tree. <laughs> Do you ever doubt the goodness of God? Just look at the cross. And as mentioned earlier, when men blame God for the deplorable condition of the world, they are really railing at the goodness of God. Uh, Adam's sin, Eve's sin, your sin, and my sin uh, are capital offenses. What are the wages of sin? Death. Beloved, I say this to people all the time. If you're not in hell, this is evidence of God's grace and mercy and goodness because that's where you should be. That's where I should be. That's where Adam and Eve, God should have just shipped them off. It was a capital offense. They sinned with a high hand against an holy and awesome God. It's a capital offense. It's worthy of death, uh, physical death and eternal death. This is what the, the Bible clearly teaches. Friends, if you're not in hell, you are the beneficiary of the goodness of God. And the love and the mercy. You know, I like what, I like what again, I'm going to reference a, a quote from A.W. Pink. He says, you know, God should have just judged us. He should just judge us. But instead, because He is long-suffering and patient and He forbears, He ushered in a dispensation of judgment we know that, you know, all we've got to do is read Romans chapter 1, that uh, uh, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. We know that, that judgment is in process. But there's this dispensation when there's still time to cry out to the Lord and receive grace and mercy. God should have just dropped the hammer, but He didn't. And so when men are railing about the, the deplorable condition of the world, what they're really railing about is the fact that God has given them a period of grace to come and be saved and to know Him. What a tragic, what, how arrogant men are, right? How arrogant men are. Yes, the world is in a mess. We made it a mess. But God is forbearing. That's what I want to say to you, man. God, God is forbearing. God is forbearing. What does Romans 2, 4 say? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God... Leads to what? Repentance. So when men rail at God about the world, they're railing about this dispensation of grace. Because we all should just be in hell, friends, if we understand our Bibles. But God is forbearing. God is good. God is forbearing. God is forbearing. Verse 18. Uh, He's talking about, uh, James is talking about uh, that, that it's by the will of God that, that, we've, that we've been born again. He's talking about the begotten of God Christian, the born from above Christian, the born again Christian. For it is by the exercise of His will that we are redeemed. Oh, I say this to you a lot, but you know, after Adam and Eve sinned, they went looking for God because they wanted to get it sorted out, right? 
Is that, that, is that what the account says? Man, when they sinned, they were out looking for God. Oh God, I'm seeking for God. Where is He? We need to get this right. We know we made a mistake. Is that how it happened? Who seeks who in the Bible? Who seeks who in the Bible all the time on every page? God is seeking His people. You never see men seeking God. And if, if we understand our Bibles, uh, Romans chapter 3, no man seeks for God. Now, we know that men like uh, to play religion and like, they like to do a lot of pomp and circumstance and they like to create their own gods. And it's a power trip and, and uh, we know that men like to do that. But the Bible says no man truly seeks the living God, the biblical God. No man does. Romans chapter 3, go read it. Go read it. It's quite an indictment. Quite an indictment. There is none who seek for God according to the Scriptures. The Bible makes it crystal clear there's not one man on the planet genuinely seeking after God. God's the seeker. Jesus says, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. That which was lost. Beloved, our salvation is of God from beginning to end. Uh, it was His idea. It's His initiative. It's from Him and through Him and by Him. If we know Him, it's by Him. He's breathtakingly good. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever take that for granted. Here come the boys. <laughs> the boys have escaped. <laughs> that's okay, that's okay. That was me catch up with my notes here. And, and, and I just want to make this point. I just want to make this point. Notice how this miracle happens. This, this born again miracle. You know, all the way through the Old Testament, God says, man, I got a, you need a miracle so big, I'm going to have to rip out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Right? God says, you need a miracle so big, I have to do it. Religion ain't going to get it done for you. It's a thing of God. It's something that God does. So, um, how does He do it? What, is this, what does the text say to us? How does He do it? By what? The Word of Truth, right? The Word of Truth, by the Word of God. This is why we preach the Bible. This is, you know, this is what we do here. We preach it, we teach it, we have classes. This is why we do this, because conversion happens by the Word of God. I've told you many times, I was converted by the Word of God. It was just somebody reading the Bible. And I went, bam! I've been in church all my life. I realized, I'm not a Christian at all. I don't love Jesus like that. And bam! You know, cool stuff happens in church. Um, cool stuff happens. I was converted in church. After being a religious man for 28 years, I was converted in church. And James is saying, he's saying to his scattered flock here, he says, man, you're merely the first fruits of his creatures. You guys know what he's talking about there, right? He's just saying, hey, there's going to be a huge harvest. You first century Christians, you're just the beginning. There's going to be a huge harvest from every nation, tongue, and tribe. God's going to bring in a huge harvest. God is good. Every man has ever been born has shaken his fist either metaphorically or literally in the face of God. But God is going to bring in a giant harvest. God is good. This is what James is saying. He's so good. There's going to be a giant harvest coming in because of the goodness of God. Clyde Kilby is right. It's, there's great loss when we lose that wonder that we uh, see all around us. But there's an infinitely greater tragedy. And that's when Christians stop being in awe of Jesus Christ. 
And they stop living like they're in awe of Jesus Christ. And they stop worshiping like they're in awe of Jesus Christ. And the awe of Jesus Christ no longer really informs the way they live their lives. Friends, that's spiritual malpractice. That is spiritual malpractice. And I really, in my view, it's blasphemous to call ourselves Christians and um, allow that to happen. And not to be good stewards of the wonder. You ever heard anybody say that? You ever heard anybody say to be good stewards of the wonder? Friends, you to be good stewards of the wonder of Christ and the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel. So, if, uh, if you've grown a little blasé about Jesus Christ of late, I want to ask you a question. If you didn't already possess the true knowledge of God, what would you give in exchange for it? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this uh, great passage um, reminding us of your godness, unchangeably good, unchangeably good, immutably good. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this reminder. And oh God, forgive us that we would ever become lukewarm or blasé about the Lord Jesus or about the Gospel or about serving the body and loving the body and ministering to others around us and sharing the Gospel to unbelievers. Oh God, forgive us if we ever become blasé about that. Forgive us if we've not been good stewards of the wonder. Because there's enough wonder here to fill up eternity. Lord God, thank You for this reminder of Your goodness. May we, may we think deeply about this. May we meditate on this this week. May we be on the lookout for all the goodness that You're bringing into our lives every single day. We can't even count it. We can't even begin to count it. Forgive us, Lord, when we concentrate on the one difficult thing in our life to the exclusion of the 10,000 blessings that You're lavishing upon us every single second. Lord, help us to count our blessings. Help us to worship You for Your great and infinite and unchanging goodness. We praise You for this great reminder, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.
Amen. Go forth and rejoice in the goodness of God. Amen. Oh, thank you.